Well, wherever you are, I hope that you'll join me in your copy of God's Word in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28 today. Today's Palm Sunday. That is that that Sunday on which Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a a colt of a donkey uh, to the shouts of uh, praise of those who welcomed his coming into the city, city of Jerusalem. I wonder, have you ever hedged a bet? I know all of us are good, good Baptists, and so we, we've never been to a casino. We don't bet, but uh, maybe you, you've thought about what it might be like to, to hedge a bet. You know what hedging a bet is, right? It's where you, uh, you may bet a little bit of money for a big return on kind of a long shot deal, and maybe a little bit more money on a, uh, a slightly different bet in a different direction. So that if one or the other of the two bets doesn't pay off, the, 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 the payoff of the one that, that does come through will help mitigate any losses that you have. People don't do this just in gambling. They do it in real estate. They do it in the stock market. We hedge bets all over the place to try to minimize our losses, not wanting to commit too much to one uh, one possibility or another. We instead seek to invest a little bit of ourselves in a couple of different directions in the event that one or the other might not pay off. Well, this might uh, be an okay or an all right approach to maybe dealing with real estate or the stock market or whatever your investments might be. But I would say it's not a possibility at all when it comes to how we deal with God and especially with what we do in our relationship to Jesus as King. Here today, we're going to look at Luke 19 verses 28 through 44. See Jesus, the coming King. And we'll find in these verses that as Jesus arrives into Jerusalem on this Sunday before his crucifixion and uh, death and burial and resurrection, that he is greeted by those who are delighted uh, in his coming, by his disciples and, and those, those large groups of his followers that rejoiced at his arrival in Jerusalem. And simultaneously, he is rejected by those religious leaders and teachers, the Pharisees, who reject his coming as king. The point that uh, I want for us to draw from the text this morning is as simple as this. You can hail him or else hate him, but you cannot hedge when it comes to King Jesus. You can hail him as king, you can hate him as a lunatic, but you can't hedge your bets when it comes to Jesus. Today, I hope that we would be led through God's word and our time together uh, to, to, in our own hearts, hail Jesus as king. the the rightful King of kings and Lord of our lives, and not to hate Him, not to reject Him. But either way, uh, however we may come out at the end of this text, to have made a clear decision about who Jesus is. So join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, and we'll read verses 28 through 44 together. Luke says, And when Jesus had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 
As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and he saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." You can hail him as king, hate him as a lunatic, but you cannot hedge when it comes to Jesus. Saying it this way, you can hail him or hate him, in light of the text that we read together this morning, causes us to ask a couple of questions and then, uh, and then to at least answer a third point. The first question that a statement as strong as hail him or hate him uh, uh, causes us to ask is this, why hail him? Why hail Jesus? Why why rejoice at His coming? Why receive Him as Lord like these disciples did? Well, first of all, reason to hail Him is because He is the Lord. He's the Son of God. He He is God in flesh, fully God, fully human, sinlessly living among us that He might die in our place for our sins. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Son of God. He, he illustrates, Jesus illustrates for us in Luke's gospel that He is the Lord, that He is the Son of God, that He is divine even in His humanity. And He does this by, by demonstrating that He knows details about situations ever before they take place. On the one hand, there's kind of a, a, a comical, a humorous version uh, of this as He tells His disciples to go ahead of Him and, and in the town where they're going, they'll find a colt tied up, the colt of a donkey tied up and to uh, untie it and bring it to him. And he says, the, the people who own the colt may say to you, what are you doing? And you are to say to them, oh, the Lord has need of this colt. And sure enough, the disciples do exactly as Jesus says. They go into the town, they find the colt. And what happens? Well, the owners of the colt say, what are you doing? Untying the colt of the donkey. And the disciples respond by saying, hey, the Lord has need of it. And sure enough, everything takes place just as it ought. That's kind of humorous. It's kind of funny. And I think Luke means for it to be sort of, uh, sort of humorous to us there as a, in the sense that Jesus is telling them what's going to happen and then it happens and we just kind of uh, chuckle a little bit at whatever disbelief the disciples may have had beforehand. Jesus knows the situations that are going to take place ever before they do. He is, he is the Lord in the sense that he knows things that, that uh, normal human beings do not know. He doesn't just know little details, though, about where a cult will be and and what the owner of a cult might say to his disciples. He also knows things further down the road in the future. Jesus is aware of a particularly sad situation that's going to take place just about 40 years from the present moment here in Luke. You see, in the year AD 70, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. It was surrounded by Roman soldiers, uh, torn to the ground, burned. Uh, Many people living in it were killed and many fled to the hills around the city. The temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt. The ruins of the Western Wall still lie in in ruins to this day in Jerusalem. 
And Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem here in verses 41 through 44 when he weeps over the city, saying, I wish that you had known, even on this day, what leads for peace, but the things are hidden from your eyes and a day is coming when everything will be destroyed. Just as Jesus said, it it happened, it took place. History records it. We we see the ruins of it even to this day, a devastating day that Jesus knew about 40 years before it ever happened, prophesied with specificity about what would take place. We hail Jesus because He's Lord. He's the Son of God. He knows things that only God can know. We hail Him not only because He's the Lord, because He is divine, He's the only God, man, God in flesh, but also because He's the King. He's the son of David. He's the the rightful heir to the throne of David the king, that that man after God's own heart. The way that Jesus arrives into the city itself here in uh, Luke chapter 19 shows us that, that Jesus is king and is meant to illustrate that he is this king in the line of David. He arrives into the city uh, on the back of a donkey's colt. And this is not by accident. This is, this is not just a, a happenstance of, of history. There's much intentionality behind Jesus riding in on, on a colt, and not just a colt of any sort of beast, but the colt of specifically a donkey. You see, donkeys are not beasts of war. You're not going to ride into battle on the back of a donkey. Ride into battle on the back of a, a horse. A horse is an animal made for, made for war and adventure and action. A donkey is an animal made for work. Work, especially in times of peace and, um, and, and personal prosperity and times of, of well-being. Donkeys are used to pull plows in fields and to help uh, do other work you know, around the farm and in other agricultural sorts of contexts. A donkey is not a beast of war, but a beast of peace, a beast of peacetime. And at that, Jesus rides in not just on a donkey, but on the colt of a donkey, a, 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 an adolescent version of of the animal. Jesus in riding on a colt, uh, or or, or put it this way, the the colt's first work uh, as an animal, as a beast of burden, a beast of peacetime, is to carry the king of kings into the city. This is no small feat. This is no small matter in the life of this animal or in the life of of Jesus uh, watching this take place. This is a very special moment. Special, not, not just for what it entails about the donkey being an, an animal of peace and, it's, and the first act of this cult being carrying the divine Son of God into the city of Jerusalem, but it also fulfills Scripture. So there's a passage in the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, that says this. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Over 500 years before Jesus was ever born, the prophet Zechariah spoke these words of hope in the Spirit of God to the people of God, that their King, their Messiah, God's uh, chosen servant who would save His people, would come to them riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And sure enough, here is Jesus fulfilling this very prophecy. You see, Jesus' arrival into the city on the donkey that day, is stating in very clear terms that he is that Messiah. He is that king that Zechariah prophesied and the people of Israel had long waited for. He is the one in the line of David who would reign over God's people forever in truth and justice and mercy and grace and would save the people from their sins. 
So as both the Son of God and the heir to the throne of David, Jesus alone uniquely fits uh, every criteria for God's Messiah and for the, the king that would come in the line of David. There's no one else ever in the scope of history that has fulfilled all of the expectations for who this king in the line of David and who this Messiah that God would send would be other than Jesus. He alone fulfills all of those expectations and fulfills them perfectly in his life in which he lives without ever once sinning so that he could give his sinless perfect life. Not, not, not in, in reclaiming a geopolitical kingdom for himself, but so they could give his life to save the souls, to bring forgiveness of sins to those who would trust in him. This is the purpose of Luke. The purpose of Luke is to point us to Jesus, who is Lord, he is God, and he is King. As, as Luke starts his gospel in Luke chapter 1, he tells the initial recipient of this gospel, a man named Theophilus, that he is writing to, to make certain for Theophilus the things that Theophilus has already been taught about who Jesus is. Listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past. Here he's speaking about having done historical work to understand the events of the life of Jesus, to teach Theophilus having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is writing his gospel to give certainty to Theophilus and to every other person who reads it that Jesus is both Lord and King and worthy of being hailed as such, worthy of being received as such. Why hail him? Why hail Jesus? because he's Lord and because he's King. We've said that we can hail him or hate him. And that second part of that statement leads us to ask a second question. Why hate him? Well, why would anybody hate Jesus in his own day? Why would anybody choose to hate or reject Jesus now? Well, very simply, first of all, because you don't believe that he is God. You don't believe that he is Lord. You don't believe that he is the divine son of God who takes on flesh in a man named Jesus of Nazareth. The Pharisees, we see, illustrate this point for us here in Luke chapter 19. As Jesus uh, comes uh, toward the city uh, of Jerusalem on the back of that colt, uh, there are Pharisees, these religious leaders, experts in the Jewish law, who hear the disciples of Jesus praising Him, shouting, uh, 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 shouting uh, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And the Pharisees know exactly what these disciples are saying, exactly how what they're praising Jesus for being as Lord. And they, and they are saying, Jesus, you've got to stop your disciples. What they're saying is, is wrong. It's not true. They're blaspheming. And Jesus says, look, even if I told them to shut up, the very rocks would cry out. The very rocks would sing out in praise, in adoration, in, in reception of me as king. You see, the Pharisees told Jesus, told Jesus to rebuke his disciples because they did not believe what the disciples were saying about Jesus. They did not believe that Jesus was God. And this is not the first time that they've had this contention with Jesus. If we look in John's gospel, in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59, we see a really interesting conversation that Jesus has with some of the leading Jews. John calls them just the Jews, but there's good reason for us to believe that they are the scribes and the Pharisees. And listen to part of their conversation. John 8, verse 56, Jesus says, 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Now bear in mind, Abraham lived uh, about uh, uh, probably 1,500 to 1,600 years before uh, Jesus was, uh, was ever born. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews, the Pharisees, said to him, You're not even 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Using that that same name that God has for himself, that he tells Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. And Jesus here says, before Abraham was, I am. And so we read in the rest of that passage, John 8, 59, So they, the Jews, they picked up stones to throw at Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus made some very clear and explicit claims about his existence as divine, his existence as God, that he was one with the Father, that he was Lord. He made very clear claims about them, not hiding them at all, being very clear about it, especially here in John chapter 8. He receives the the worship and the praise of his disciples and the the crowds that had followed him as they hail him on his way to Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't tell them to be quiet. He receives their praise because he is God. But the Pharisees don't believe it. They don't believe that he's God. They reject his claim to divine sonship and they hate him for it. Hate Jesus because you don't believe that he is God. You can hate, you can reject Jesus also because you don't believe that he's king. In verse 42, we see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem for the destruction that will come upon them. And in verse 42, Jesus says, Oh, that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, the things that would make for peace. Jesus weeps, he mourns, he grieves over the coming destruction of Jerusalem because what they wanted was political salvation. What the people of Jerusalem wanted was for their Roman overlords to be gone, to be overthrown. That's the kind of king that they wanted to receive. They wanted political peace, not spiritual peace. They wanted peace that comes by politics, not not peace that comes by divine grace, and yet that is the peace that Jesus comes to bring. It's why he says, I wish that you knew what it is that makes for peace, because what makes for peace is being right with your Father in heaven. The disciples cry out as Jesus rides down the road on the back of that colt, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're alluding to, citing from Psalm chapter 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But the Messiah, the king that many of the Jews wanted was not the king that Jesus would come to be. The king that they wanted was the one who would overthrow the Roman government, who would restore uh, Jerusalem as a capital city of, of the nation of Israel back to geopolitical significance. They wanted a king who would put him back on the map the way that David had and, and Solomon had. Contrary to political peace, though, what Jesus comes to bring is a greater kind of peace, a peace that goes beyond the physical world, a peace that surpasses political situations and geopolitical relationships, a peace that that is more than just an absence of war. He comes to bring peace, which is reconciliation and restoration in relationship to God. 
Jesus says in John 14, verses 27 through 29, these words, he says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. My peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. But I don't give it to you the way that the world gives it to you. I give you a different kind of peace, Jesus says. See, the peace that he comes to bring as king as chosen Messiah, as the one who would rule and reign over God's people. The peace that Jesus gives is peace with God first, a right relationship with our creator, with our maker, forgiveness of sins and reconciliation of relationship. And then Jesus goes further to give us peace with one another. We read about the peace that he gives between uh, previously conflicting people in like books of Ephesians, the, the uh, letters that Paul wrote to the church, the kind of peace that, get, that God brings to people who are once at war with God in some of like Paul's letters to like the Romans and the Galatians. Jesus comes to make us right with God and then to give us the ability to be reconciled in relationship to one another See, Jesus' kingdom, as king, is not a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. It's not a kingdom that, that, that is bounded by national borders, but a kingdom that resides in the hearts of all who know him and love him and follow him by faith. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not just an, a nation, but it is made up of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue around the world. Because the gospel of peace with God through faith in Jesus, our, our Savior, our King who died for us on the cross, the gospel is not just for any one geopolitical group. It's not just for citizens of one particular earthly kingdom. It is for all who hope and trust in Him. Why hail Jesus? Because He's Lord, because He's King. Why hate Him? Because you don't believe that either of those two things are true. You don't believe that he's king. You don't believe that he's Lord. You reject those things that he claimed about himself. I'd like to take a moment and answer a third question that will help us to circle back around to where we began today on hedging our bets about Jesus. We've talked about why you should hail him as king, why you could hate him, uh, because you don't believe the things that he said are true. But I want to explain at this moment why I believe that hedging on Jesus is not an option. Why hedging your bets, why hedging your faith, so to speak, on Jesus is, is not actually a possibility for you. It's not, not a logical option. You can't have a little bit of Jesus right, and a little bit of other things in the event that one or the other doesn't work out. When it comes to Jesus, it's all or nothing. You can't hedge on him. In order to explain why it is that we can't hedge on Jesus, I want to take us a little bit further back in Luke chapter 19 to the passage a little bit before we started today, to Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Look in your Bibles with me. Luke chapter 19, verse 11, uh, in the verses that following, uh, says this, As they heard these things, and the things uh, uh, pertain to what comes earlier in Luke 19, where Jesus has this uh, awesome encounter with this little man named Zacchaeus, a tax collector, who through his experience of grace uh, in knowing Jesus and coming to believe that he is Messiah, uh, Zacchaeus' whole life is turned around, and Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
And then as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable. 1911 tells us, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they, those who were listening to him, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, therefore, this is the parable that he tells, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return, a man going off to become a king and then to come back and, and reign, as, reign as king over his province, over his area, over his kingdom. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him so that he might know how they gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And the, the king said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little, so you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You're an exacting man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you then with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, an exacting man taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus tells lots of parables in his life, in his ministry. These stories, uh, figurative tales that, uh, that are meant to convey bigger spiritual truths to those who are listening. And here he does another one of those, uh, tells another one of those stories here in Luke chapter 19 before the, the, the arrival into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. In his parable, we see a man who goes off to become king and on returning comes to exact from his servants uh, or to receive from his servants the things that he had entrusted to their care while he was gone, expecting them to do business with the money that he had placed in their care. First servant he goes to uh, says, hey, I took your, the, your, your one mina, I turned it into 10 more, I put it to work, I invested it, now here's your return. The next servant said, I took your one mind, I was able to make five more out of it. Here's your profit, here's your return. And, and for doing business that the nobleman, now returned as a king, had required, these men are rewarded. But then there's a third who comes to the, the king and he says, here's your mina that you gave me. I've done nothing with it. I hid it in a handkerchief. This third servant hedged his bets. This third servant hedged on the 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 returning noblemen's, the, 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 coming, the, the returning king's uh, faithfulness, and, and, and even that, that he would even come back as a king. This third servant thought, perhaps, on the one hand, I can uh, take this, my now, wrap it up in a handkerchief, hold on to it myself, 
And if the nobleman comes back and he's not a king, if he hasn't received a kingdom, or if the, or if the nation that doesn't want to sit under his reign, if, if they revolt against him and, and overthrow him, hey, I've got a mina for myself. And if he comes back as a king, the very least I'll do is return the, the mina to him. And uh, so I'll, I'll just give back to him what was his, and I'll get the best of both worlds, irrespective of whatever, whatever circumstance may, may play out. Well, sure enough, the king returns and he says, hey, where's my mina? Or where, where is the, that which you've done? That which, where, what's the result of the business you've done with the mina I gave you? And the man says, I've just got this one. What does the king do? The king sends him off to be cast out of the kingdom and to be executed as a traitor along with all of the other traitors. How is it that the king would do that? Why would the king do that? Well, because this man's hedging demonstrates that he's not faithful to anyone but himself and his own best interests. He hedged. He wasn't uh, fully committed to the king and he wasn't fully committed to him himself. He, he tried to have the best of both. And in trying to have the best of both, he proved himself to be an enemy of the king. You see, not to hail the king, not to worship the king is to hate him. Ambivalence to Jesus is opposed to acceptance of, of Christ. To shoulder shrug at the king is to shun him altogether. You see, with everything that Scripture tells us about who Jesus is, who he was, the claims that he made about himself, the Bible's testimony to his crucifixion for sins and his resurrection from the dead leaves all of us in a place where we have to make a decision about Jesus. And it's not a bet. It's not like I'm, I'm guessing that this will come out to be true or I'm guessing that this will take place. No, what we do with Jesus is a genuine response. We either believe all that the Scripture has said about Him or else we reject Him and everything Scripture says about Him altogether. The point that Luke chapter 19 and the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is driving us to is this that we must do something with Jesus. Hail him or hate him, but you cannot hedge on the coming king. Luke's gospel is very clear. He wants his reader, Theophilus, and us today, even as we read his, his gospel now, to know with certainty that Jesus is both Lord, he is God, and he is king. That he is God in flesh and the Messiah that God promised would come into the world to save his people from their sins. He is the one who died on the cross. He is the one who gave his sinless life as a substitute for you and for me, for our offenses against a holy God. And he is the one, Jesus is the one, who rose from the dead, never to die again, glorified forever, so that all who would turn from their sin, turn from self and trust in him, would be saved. All who receive him and hail him as king, who rejoice at his coming in their own life, would have a right and restored relationship with their God and Creator. There is no hedging on Jesus. You must decide one way or the other about whether you will follow Him publicly or whether you will deny Him. You and I, we can pretend our whole lives through that uh, that that we we're just not. That there's not enough evidence about Jesus. That, that there's not enough to make a conclusive claim about what he said uh, could be taken as, as true or not. In reality, though, when push comes to shove, 
we'll all come to a place where we have to recognize that the claims that Jesus made can't just be weighted on, hedged on, until there is more evidence, more conclusive, uh, more conclusive signs that what he said was true. In fact, I believe that what we have in the Bible and even from recorded history from around this period in time is more than enough evidence to believe that the claims that Jesus made about himself were true. And I've staked my life on that truth, that Jesus is King, that He is Lord. And to stake your life on Jesus as King, as Lord, to hail Him as King, is not just a, it's not merely a one-time decision. You see, this is not a thing that, that is, this is not a decision that only needs to be made by those who are not yet followers of Jesus. Dear Christian, you too and, and, and I, we need to live in response to, to our reception of Jesus as King every day. It's not merely enough to, it's or, or, or merely right or consistent to hail Jesus as King one day at one time and, and then to go on living the rest of our lives however we want to. If Jesus is really King, then every aspect of our life comes under His rule, comes under His sovereignty, comes over, under his, his reign. To receive Jesus as King means that we give our whole lives over to Him. We make our, our whole self, every thought that we have, every, every desire of our heart, every action of, of our will, uh, make it obedient to Him as King. It means we believe what He said about Himself and we shape our lives around those truths and we have our lives shaped by God around the, the truths of who Jesus was explained to us in the Word. All of us today have to make a decision. All of us will make a decision in our life, either to hail Jesus as King or to hate Him. But one thing is true, none of us can hedge when it comes to Him. If Jesus is King, He deserves uh, every bit of our allegiance to Him, our obedience to Him. But we know that Jesus is not a, 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 a gruff, He's not a, 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 a malicious or capricious King. He is a good King, a loving King. He is a king who, who describes himself as a good shepherd who comes to lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the same passage where he talks about him being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. You see, that's the kind of Lord, that's the kind of king that Jesus is. He's a life-giving king. And not just any kind of life, abundant life, which means life full of, of meaning and joy and, and, and passion and purpose found in being called a son, a daughter of God, adopted by faith in Jesus Christ. So dear friend, wherever you're at today, whether you're a Christian, not yet a Christian, my, my invitation to you, my encouragement to you today is this, believe on Jesus, trust in Him, if you've already made that commitment to follow Him as, as, as King, press into that commitment today. Rejoice in the fact that you have come to know Him, that you have come to receive in your heart Jesus as King of kings, Lord of lords, and submit your whole life to Him. Hail Him as King. Worship Him as Lord, as God, and follow Him into the abundant life that He gives you. I pray that our time this morning in Luke 19 has caused us who are followers of Christ uh, to press into deeper commitment to Him as King, to, to, to give more of ourselves over to His sovereignty in our lives. 
and to trust him more with each coming day. Jesus is king. He is reigning on his throne even now. We wait for him to return to call the church to himself and to set all things right. But until that day, we rejoice. We rejoice in knowing that Jesus the king who gave his life for sinners is risen and reigning and ruling in the hearts of those who love him and trust him by faith even now. Let's pray together. Great God in heaven, what a delightful truth it is to know that Jesus is Lord and King, that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of you, most holy God. Thank you for revealing to us the glory of Jesus's kingship in Luke chapter 19. Thank you for fulfilling scripture from Zechariah 9 in his life, proving your faithfulness to your word that it will never fail. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the king who gave your life for us. And we ask that that you would turn the hearts of those who are even now skeptical about you or opposed to you. Jesus, reveal your glory to them. Reveal your loving kindness and care and compassion to them even now. Compel them to trust you by faith. Holy Spirit, lead our hearts to rejoicing, to hail, to worship the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, who arrived into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday. Let us in our hearts sing with the crowd that day, Blessed is the King who has come in the name of the Lord. Peace and glory in the highest. Jesus, we praise you, King of our hearts, and we give our lives to you in committed obedience. This we pray in your name. Amen.